You know, one of my greatest thrills and one of the great rewards in this life is when I get to spend time with people who are creative by nature, both personally and professionally. I always learn from them. They inspire me and they challenge me to be more creative myself. One of those people is Rob Bender, a guy who wears more creative hats than I can count. He's a musician, film director, songwriter, television producer, environmentalist, cinematographer, storyteller, and get this, he's a world-class birder. I've had the honor of working with Rob off and on since 1993, often on film projects, and he's been a great inspiration and teacher, although sometimes in a frustrating way. The last time I went birding with him out in Los Angeles, he was casually spotting species and in many cases identifying them by ear, making me wonder if my binoculars were broken and causing me to conclude that I should stick to identifying the birds found wrapped in plastic in the supermarket. On one project, which you'll hear about, and which was the project where we met, we traveled all over the United States for about a month with a full film crew. Sound engineer, director of photography, a grip, a producer, a director, that was Rob, and I was the writer and the technical director. That's basically the subject matter expert. We were doing a series of programs about the importance of the telecom industry and the technologies that it delivers. And along the way, we went to an internet cafe in San Francisco. This was 1993, before the internet was widespread, before the arrival of the World Wide Web, before everybody had multiple digital devices, hence the need for internet cafes. We also went to the Sarnoff Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, where video was invented. We went to Motorola headquarters in Schaumburg, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and we interviewed, among many others, Vinton Cerf, the true father of the internet. He, along with Bob Kahn, created TCPIP. So yeah, he gets to take that credit. Rob has just come out with a new album of original music, so I thought it might be a good time to catch up with him and talk about music and birding and filmmaking and writing and a few other creative things. I hope you like the episode. Who the hell is Rob Bender? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm, I'm a lot of things, Steve. Basically, I kind of live in the creative world. Music specifically right now, but I've kind of had a nonlinear approach to life. I've done film for a while, done TV for a while, back to music, and all these different things, and uh, it's all been good. Yeah, you know, friends of mine have said to me, kind of what I said to you a second ago, you know, just a little bit, I kind of hate you because you figured out a way to turn your hobbies into a business. I mean, you can actually make money doing the things you love. How many people get that opportunity? And you're clearly one of those. Yeah, I, I, I do feel very fortunate to have been able to make my living through things that I love doing and uh, and continue to now. But I don't, I, at this point, I really don't have to rely on, on these things, you know, for subsistence. But um, nevertheless, you know, I like doing creative things. I can't help it. You know, that's that's where my energy comes from. Uh, I've certainly tried other other jobs and other, you know, forms of work and everything. And uh, and after a short while, the fire just goes away uh, and I get tired, bored, can't do it. And, uh, you know, that, the energy, the creative things bring out the energy in me and, you know, make my life worthwhile, really. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's funny, um, I've always said that being a writer isn't something I do, it's something I am. And I think being creative in general, being drawn to the creative arts, whatever those may be, it doesn't matter that, you know, it's a broad swath. 
and it isn't a job, but at the risk of sounding just a little bit smarmy, it's it's kind of a calling, right? I mean, I mean, we do it because we don't have a choice. We have to do it. I mean, I, I can't not write. I feel like that too. And uh, I've tried other things and my God, you know, it's, I don't know what it is. Something internal just keeps pulling me out of those other more corporate uh, jobs or whatever and, and pulling me into this other uh, more freeform lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so how did you get here? I mean, tell me a little bit about your background that kind of led you to this point. I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time and I've now long enough, in fact, that I've seen you in a variety of sort of modalities, but tell me a little bit about your background growing up, education, all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I grew up in a really small town, state of Washington. And, uh, you know, I spent the first 17 years of my life there, basically. My parents were not really into the arts or anything like that. Uh, however, they did listen to a lot of different kinds of music. They always had books on hand with reading poetry and and uh, short stories to me when I was a kid, you know, and uh, looking at art and everything. So I, I had that influence even before I knew what it was basically that was just kind of the world I was in but they were not musicians painters anything like that but they they appreciated that so I then went on to college um, at some point in my life I got interested in in film and uh, so I had my father's little film camera little eight millimeter thing so I'd go out with friends and we'd make these little war movies and psychedelic things and all this kind of thing. And so that that led to thinking I would major in, in film. And so I went to Washington State University and, and did that. They had some really experimental filmmakers there at the time. Uh, Mike McNamee was this guy uh, from San Francisco. And uh, oh my God, he was just doing some great things, which I really gravitated towards. So anyway, after college, it was kind of like, now get a job. And the jobs at the time were, I remember mainly were, were in the news uh, gathering footage, you know, be a cameraman, reporter, things like that. And that just, that didn't call to me. I guess um, when I was going to school in the Palouse, you know, you had to take journalism classes as part of the, the major. So 50 below at, you know, 4.30 in the morning, walking up to the studio to, to rip off the, the, the wire things and make a news broadcast out of it. I, I thought this might not be what I want to do. I went back to music at that point. You know, I had always played music through high school and most of college. That's also when my interest in music really kind of exploded to beyond just pop music. I moved back east and I just happened to meet somebody who was doing video production, film production, that sort of thing. And a lot of educational work. So so I did that for, for quite a while back there, too, just doing all kinds of uh, different video productions. Not not television, per se, but medical stuff, educational stuff. Done a lot of environmental pieces. But music was always on the peripheral. And uh, since moving to Los Angeles, I got into TV first and started doing TV work as a director and producer and, and still had my own production company going. And, and then... I just got tired of that. That's really a grind, really a grind, especially when you're working on a on a show that uh, has these huge deadlines, which are somewhat artificial, but the advertisers want their money. So at that point, I, I decided I would get back into music a little bit. So that's that's more or less what I've been doing ever since then. One of my most poignant memories 
of our time together happened in um, 93, maybe. We were on a shoot. You were directing the show. I was sort of the TD. I was a technical director. And we had a weekend. And we decided not to shoot over the weekend because you had to disappear because you had to go do something about a bird. You had to travel somewhere to identify a bird that had been found or something. I don't remember what it was. The point being that in the, in the interest of nonlinear careers, you are a world-class premier birder. And I got to know about that. I know that for a while you lived in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is well known for a lot of, uh, a lot of birders. It's, I guess it's part of a flyway that gives you access to a lot of great stuff. But Talk to me about that. I mean, how does that fit in here? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure it, it does. But I tell you, uh, the interest in birds, uh, I guess, just because of their the nature uh, of a bird. It's, uh, you know, a lot of birds are very beautifully plumaged. And they make some incredible sounds. Uh, just a wide variety of sounds, as you're well aware of. And I guess, uh, you know, because I listen, I watch, I look at things and uh, they do interesting things. And I just, I mean, it really came out of left field. I didn't think I would ever have an interest in birds, but uh, I was introduced to it. And um, I got it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah, I remember we went to, on that same shoot, well, it was a different part of the trip, but the same film project. We were in Chicago at one point and we had arrived in Chicago and I, I remember you said, hey, I'm taking a trip to the Magic Hedge. Do you want to come with me? And of course, I'm thinking, Magic Hedge? Does this involve pharmaceuticals of some kind? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Take me to the Magic Hedge. And, I'm, and I said, <laughs> I'm in. Whatever that is, I'm going. And, and we went to this little spit of land that sticks out into Lake Michigan. And it turns out that the Magic Hedge is this sort of scrubby stretch of native plant life. That is because it's out in the lake. It's one of the first pieces of land that migrating songbirds find on the way up or down from the north to the south or vice versa. And of course, at that time, I I was I mean I was into birds to the extent that I knew they had feathers, and that was about the extent of it. And so, over the course of our couple of hours there, I saw some little brown birds and some medium-sized brown birds and some big brown birds. And I seem to remember that you identified about eighty species while we were there. That was incredible. Yeah. And I'd, I'd heard that that was an amazing place where you could just see all kinds, because it is this migrant trap. But when I got there and I was, I was totally blown away by it. Uh, you know, I guess we hit it at the right time of year, too. But uh, yeah, that was I remember that very well. <laughs> that was that was really cool. I actually still have the list. You gave me a copy of the list. I still have it over on my bookshelf. Oh, yep, wow. From a long time ago. Oh, you'll have to send I, that to me because I've kind of forgotten what, what I'll we be saw happy there, to. But, uh, I'll be happy to. So uh, I want to I want to come back to that for just a second because you, I remember when you did this, you did a trip, a fairly extensive trip, speaking of non-linearity, to Siberia to, if I remember correctly, you were shooting a film or working on a film about Siberian cranes. Tell me about that a little bit, because that was a that was a fascinating project. Yeah, that was. I got involved with this woman I met at a at a conference for a, a group called Partners in Flight, which was, you know, an effort to coordinate bird migration sites uh, to preserve them along the way, all the way from South America to you know up into Canada and Alaska, so that they had a you know a safer migration route, had places to stop. So. 
I was just chatting at this thing and she was from the, um, the national aviary in Pittsburgh. And she said, we're going to be taking some crane eggs from the United States over to Russia because there's a shortage of red crown cranes. And uh, there was another species too, but they weren't really that endangered. So we're going to be collecting eggs from different captive breeding places in the United States, zoos and the National Crane Foundation up in Baraboo, Wisconsin. And so I said, yeah, I'm in, you know, got camera, we'll travel. So um, I packed up my gear along with a, uh, along with a solar charger for my batteries because there was no electricity going to be any electricity at these places. So yeah, we went around to the different airports, picked up all these eggs, put them in these special cases. I think in the last zoo we stopped at was Seattle and then uh, flew over to uh, yeah, over to Siberia, uh, Habarovsk, landed there, and then went on a train ride, the Siberian Express train for a day and a half out in the middle of nowhere, got off, got in a Jeep, you know, drove for another day and we we landed at this lake which was uh, some russian um biologists going to one of their outposts and study sites and so we uh stayed out there with these people and gave them the eggs and they had a breeding program there too but we would then take some of the eggs in this old uh, it was a world war ii russian helicopter an old diesel job that just shook like crazy and the floorboards were just rattling on the bottom you know i really thought this is kind of where it all all comes to a screeching halt here at some point but we took this thing way out in the middle of some marsh somewhere out there in siberia and took the eggs and uh and put them in the nest so that there would be additional you know eggs for these for these uh cranes to hatch and and on that note um i've had the honor and i use that word specifically to work with you on three or four film projects and and you were kind enough to sort of teach me the ropes i mean to help me understand you know role definitions and what people do and so on and and one of the most memorable of those was shooting for a week in a ghost town in arizona uh, for a project and you you were the director of the project and and one of my most memorable memories i think that was repetitive but whatever was you standing out in the late afternoon in the middle of Main Street, you know, where the gun the gunshots would have, you know, for gunfights would have been happening. This was the old the old Western town out there, right? The old Western town, yeah. Right, right. And I remember you had a you had a pad of paper like this, and you had a compass, and you had a your watch basically. And I'm remember I was in the saloon. I mean, unfortunately, not a functional saloon, but I was in the saloon and watching you through those swinging doors, and I'm thinking the hell is he doing? And you're sitting there and you're looking up at the sky and you've got your compass and you're making notes on this piece of paper. And later you explained to me that, you know, for continuity purposes, we have to know where the sun is at all times so that if we come back and shoot the next day, we make sure that, you know, for a scene that's going to connect with another scene, the sun better be in the same place in the sky. I had never, ever thought of that before. I mean, that was, I mean, that that is important. It was like not part of my, my reality. But I ask you that, or I, I mentioned that because... I want to have just a little quick conversation about what that means. I mean, filmmaking to most people is a bit of a dark art. You know, there's a lot of necromancy involved and, you know, magic happens and a film comes pooching out and people go watch it at the theater. But let me ask you this. What does it mean to be a director? I mean, what are you doing when you have that job? 
Well, in my experience, I have a vision of what this should look like, but that vision is based on input from all these other people. And, you know, we were working with a really creative DP, Jim Taylor, and and uh, Barbara Potter was on the thing, Chris Albertine, a lot of really talented people they're bringing, and yourself, bringing ideas in. So I I tried to kind of coalesce those, talk them over with people. So so then I'm I'm keeping track of sort of the overall theme and thing and what things should look like. That's kind of what a director does. And then just saying, okay, we're starting here. Get the horses and the wagons over here. They're coming down the street. Camera's going to be here. I mean, you're you're doing all that positioning and too, but you're also trying to be aware of of all these other things, these subtleties that are going on. So, I mean, that's the way I look at it. It's it's sort of a an overriding position, uh, if you will. And sometimes the smaller the production, you're doing more things yourself, uh, which is a good or a bad thing because you know. You always like to have things done the way you picture them. But, you know, oftentimes you're working with other people and they did something that maybe wasn't the way you did it. But it's like, oh, that was brilliant. You know, we're, we're going to use that. So it's a it's a really cooperative and collaborative uh, art form, really. Yeah, I, I remember at one point during that week, you were shooting a scene on the main street and we had hired a guy with a team of horses and a wagon and the wagon was pulling around. They, they were empty, but these big cardboard boxes that had the names of the products that this client was selling and, and in the back of the wagon. And and I remember Rob suddenly comes to a halt and he says, wait a minute, we need we need tumbleweeds here. We need tumbleweeds. Well, there were tumbleweeds everywhere. We're in the middle of the desert, right? So we, we pulled all these tumbleweeds in. The problem is there isn't a lick of wind for miles around. So <laughs> we sent somebody into town to rent a, a, a weed, you know, like a like a, a blower, you know. A leaf a, blower, yeah. Those, a leaf blower, right? And so Rob's over here going, okay, you know, cue the tumbleweed wrangler. And needless to say, we killed the audio and brought in whatever wind yeah. We could find, you know, in the in the studio. Yeah. In the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we got this perfect, you know, these tumbleweeds blowing across the street as, as the wagon comes down the lonely western road, you know, on the way into town. And I mean, you know, it's 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 all about the magic. Time was when just providing a reliable transport service was a good business to be in. Times change. Nowadays, it's not easy to look into the future and predict what will spell success for any business, let alone a telecommunications company. Yeah, no, that was a that was a particularly fun piece to do, uh, and um, I don't know how the the client uh, reacted to it, but I I think they they liked it, found it entertaining. But I I, th- I thought it was a good concept. I think originally, and I, I think that's something that you came up with, wasn't it? The original concept of how we're, you know, that whole series though, Steve, I have to say was really cool. And especially in light of what we're doing right now, because we were exploring the the base technologies that would make all this happen and what the applications might be. We wanted people to understand at a fundamental level, how does the telecom network really work? And so we went around and interviewed all kinds of people, not so much the technologists, so we certainly had our share of those, but it was the end users. It was organizations that were writing the software. It was people 
like Vinton Cerf, you know, one of the founders of the Internet Society and clearly one of the, you know, one of the, the grand masters, if you will, of, of that part of the world. I mean, they all agreed to appear on this program. And it was, you're right, it came out, it was an extraordinary program, made all the more extraordinary by the, you know, the team of people putting it together. It was, it was absolutely amazing. Let's talk about the Cowtown thing for just a second, because that was a really interesting, just environmentally, it was really a lot of fun because we, I mean, not only did we spend time in this rented ghost town that I think, if I remember correctly, it's where part of Lonesome Dove was filmed and... Is it, wasn't it owned by BBC or something? Yeah, yeah. There were a number of a number of productions up there. Yeah, it's just north of Phoenix somewhere. Yeah, like forty miles outside, and it was great. I mean, it looked like you know you expected Matt Dillon to come walking out of the sheriff's office at any point at any point in time. The concept on that piece that we were doing there was using the old West to sort of deliver the technologies of today you know it it reminded me of the the old marshall McLuhan uh, quote where he said you know you're going down the road driving your car looking in the rearview mirror that was kind of how i pictured that that whole thing happening and it was like you know it was counterintuitive but at the same time it it was visually you know it really told the story what was what was kind of going on still and how that needed to change. Do you remember going to the town, the little town of Cave Creek and what that was like? What I remember about Cave Creek, we hired a couple of of women who were for PAs who were kind of local wranglers or something there. They worked for film companies and whatnot here. But um, yeah, after shooting one of the days, they said, come on down for dinner to this place we know. So we all go down there and it's just little kind of cafe roadhouse sort of thing on the side of this highway in the town of Cave Creek, I think, or. Which, which was at the time a blink and you miss it kind of town, right? I mean, there oh, wasn't yeah. much to it. Yeah. I think it's changed quite a bit since then probably, but yeah. And we go in there and we, we take these little booths and instead of having, um, well, they had the space, you know, for where you might've had one of those little uh, jukebox things, you know, those table jukebox things in a little alcove or something, but. There was no jukebox in there. There were these little memorials with flowers and little keepsakes and icons and things like that, and pictures, you know, of the of these people. Yeah, cowboy boots. And I'm like, and... cowboy boots. And I'm like, what is this? And they explained to us that it was these were memorials done by other people for patrons of that restaurant who had gone out and then been killed on that stretch of highway right outside the place. And it was like, I don't know if, if drinking was involved or just crazy driving or what the deal was, but you, you don't see too many uh, places that have that many memorials, too. I mean, it was not like one or two. Every table had one, it seemed like. Yeah, every single booth had that little niche that had, like you said, you know, personal items that belonged to the person who had died. And and everybody knew it was just that's that's just that's. I guess that's the Cave Creek equivalent of sainthood somehow, you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And, and by God, I remember looking both ways before I got out on the highway that night, too. Let's go back uh, as we kind of close up here. Let's go back to songwriting for a second. That process is really difficult for people in the same way that writing and writing poetry and so on can also be very difficult. How do you do it? I mean, I have uh, I have a, a number of your albums, and in fact, uh, I will feature some of the music uh, in the end of this podcast. How do you approach it? 
where do the ideas come from? How do the stories hit you? Because let's face it, you know, songwriting oftentimes is storytelling, right? In, in, a, in one way or another. It really is. And, and that, for me, that's probably a thread through all my different careers that I've had in both, you know, visual and, and uh, audio art is storytelling. And that's really what it is. And yeah, it's kind of like the brain just cannot help tell a story. You know, it just wants to do that. But for me, they come from all over. And um, I try not to in any way stifle them or, or anything because I, you know, I figure I have so few ideas, you know, I mean, let's, let's just uh, take advantage of what's, what's coming in. They come from obituaries sometimes, I read an obituary, events in the paper, uh, things that happen to me, things that happen to people I know, all kinds of things. And then there's the unexplainable. I don't really believe in things happening for weird reasons and ghosts and all that kind of thing, you know? I mean, people do, and that's great, but be that as it may, I was sitting here writing this song, um, I think it was in late 2019, maybe 2020 at some point. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna improvise here. I'm not gonna start with any ideas. start playing something on the piano I put uh, some percussion in it just totally free form I said I don't care if this ever sees the light of day I'm just going to do this and you know after a while and you come back to it in a day or so things take shape you get ideas oh I'm going to do this yeah you know it's just like you just develop it on your own just make it up as you go you know and you go back once you're done and maybe you change some things and get it into a little bit better form but the story that involved was I was I was speaking from the point of view of a comet coming through a solar system. And you know, I was thinking these things about, oh, I see all these planets, you know, and blah blah blah. And it was kind of like it became this weird show. I finished the song and kind of put it away and, and a couple of months later. I read about this comet Neowise that's now been spotted and is coming into our solar system. And it's like, whoa, was it communicating with me? Now I don't know what to think. (laughs) But it was very odd. Of course it was, Rob. Of course it was. Oh, okay. All right. I'll take your word for it. That's good. Dude, it, it knew that you're the guy that did the telecom project. So it simply harnessed the project that you were working on. And then the next thing you know, you've got this mind meld going on. (laughs) i don't know you know who knows but yeah that that's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me and uh in terms of songs but the other ones are just uh you know they just come and develop and you you know you always have to i always have to at least step back from it after a while and just kind of listen to it revise it figure if it's worth it or not you know uh, it was it is it is this song doing what i really was intending in the first place uh so i'll go back and listen to a, a scratch version you know which was kind of the original inspiration because uh, a lot of times that's what i'll do so i'm just playing around and if i 
strike on something that I like, I'll record it, you know, and kind of just develop it really quickly as fast as I can, put it away, come back to it later and see if that's, if there's anything there worth pursuing, you know, and sometimes it hits me, sometimes it doesn't. The worst is when something hits you in the middle of the night, wakes you up and you're singing this song in your head. And you know, if I don't get up now and do this, this thing is going away for the rest of my life. And I've let some pass, but I've also jumped up and and done some stuff. And it's uh, just the way it happens sometimes. What role does uh, curiosity play? I think because I'm curious about a lot of things, that's what leads me down a path. And once I start going down that path, well, it's the rabbit hole, basically, (laughs) you know, but um, it's kind of like, you know, you go down a path and it seems crazy. And yet all of a sudden you discover something that you didn't know about that connects to something else. And all of a sudden you're putting these pieces together and you go back and you may have a very random looking thing that you're, that you've discovered here, but it's it's very unique. Curiosity is it's really what gets the ball rolling. If you're not curious about stuff, what are you doing? Where do people go to find your music? When it's released, it's on all the different uh, platforms, streaming platforms. You know, I've also got a Bandcamp site, uh, which I really like because if you're into downloading music and really want to hear it at a high quality, you can download these things from uh, Bandcamp for whatever you want to pay. My friend, Rob Bender. I want to end this episode with some of Rob's music, so I asked him what song he'd like to feature. Here's Down the Road. Say goodbye and stop walking backwards.